1: Hello, welcome to new and returning listeners. I'm Dr. Danica Ramsey-Brimberg and your host of this episode of New Books in Irish Studies under New Books Network. I'm excited to welcome Dr. John Gillis, author of the recently published The Fad and More Psalter, The Discovery and Conservation of a Medieval Treasure. Welcome, John, to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Danica. Nice to be here.
1: Would you tell us a little about yourself?
0: Well, I am a manuscript conservator. I have worked for, gosh, nearly 35 years now in the conservation department in the library of Trinity College Dublin. Um, and many of your listeners might be familiar with Trinity College Dublin as uh, the home of the famous Book of Kells. Of course, that's not what we're here to talk about today, but um, yes. So, so I, I've been involved in this sort of manuscript conservation work and conservation work in general uh, as a book conservator, um, as I say, for over 35 years.
1: And then for those listeners unfamiliar with your book, what is the Fatimor Psalter about?
0: The Fatimor Psalter is an early medieval manuscript um, and it basically contains the 100, well, it did contain the 150 Psalms when it was first produced in Latin, um, which was, of course, part of the Old Testament. Um, And it is a book produced on parchment, which is typical of the time. This period, we're talking about in the early medieval period, 8th and 9th century. Uh, And it was discovered in a bog in the midlands of Ireland back in 2006.
1: And then how did you get involved with the project regarding the book?
0: Uh, that's a good question, actually. Yeah. So I, w- I was happily working away in, in Trinity College and, and I was very much like any other observer. It, it, it made headline news of the day. It made the, it made the front pages of many of the national papers and I was reading it as excitingly as anybody else that discovered it. Um, it was brought, once it was retrieved from the bog, it was brought to the National Museum of Ireland's Conservation Department. Um, because all discovered treasures in Ireland of any description uh, immediately become property of the state, uh, unlike some other countries where there's kind of an ownership and fee paid. Uh, so the, the state immediately takes ownership of it. And in, and in this case, National Museum took it back to their department. When, they, when it was established, what they were actually looking at, uh, because of the poor state of it, of course, uh, <laughs> it took a little while to work it all out. And they knew they were dealing with an unusual set of organic materials, if you like. So if we think about what an early medieval book is made of, and we're talking about leather, but most particularly, as I said earlier, we were talking about parchment. Now, the the conservation department in in the National Museum is, is, is a very... Is, is housed for um, all the artifacts that come through there, organic, inorganic, and they have a team of, of, of highly trained professionals. But parchments and, and books wouldn't be typical for their, for their area of expertise. So they asked would I be interested in looking at it at first, in, in, at the first stage, um, and then uh, on the back of that I went on secundment from Trinity um initially, the idea was I would be there for two years while we kind of worked it all out. It ended up being actually four and a half years.
1: And then as a part of your involvement in the book, you mentioned that you're specifically in the acknowledgement section that this book was based on your Ph.D. thesis. How did you transform your thesis into this book?
0: It was a great difficulty, <laughs> I would say, in the first instance. Um, yeah, it, it really. <laughs> What drove me or what kind of motivated me to to, to do this, to take it from the from the conservation project into a thesis was the idea of of finding a way to expand it out into other discipline areas. Because as I say, my job, if you like, while I was up in the museum was to focus on the conservation, the stabilization of the manuscript, um, to make it accessible uh, and uh, to allow it to be displayed in fact of course as 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 a national object as a national treasure um but it was just so obvious right from the off that that there was so many elements of this that needed investigation that needed time spent on it and i thought well if if you know if I'm going to spend so much invest so much time into it, i may as well try and get something out of it <laughs> and uh so I and of course the other thing, I mean I say that slightly flippantly, but of course the other thing was it, it put structure on. So I approached Trinity and asked if they'd be willing to support me, um, which which thankfully they did, uh to to convert it into a into a, into a PhD thesis, which took all of seven years to, to do to complete.
1: And then with the, um, the book, it's organized by various, studying various parts of your analysis. So after the introduction, you have chapters on conservation, the vellum text block, the writing and decoration, the binding, the trial motifs on the cover, and early medieval book decoration in general, the monastic landscape overall, the fine spot, and finally the conclusion along with the bibliography and appendices. Why did you organize your book in this way?
0: Well, well, again, it kind of harps back to my original point that I really wanted to demonstrate that um, a medieval manuscript such as the Fadenmore Psalter ha- has so much more to inform us beyond its contents, if you like, you know, as a three dimensional uh, organic object, the uh, there's so much it's telling us if you if you're willing to extract much more than the than the words and the letters on, on the pages, um, how it's made, the materials used, the, the evidence of damage that occurred to it. And because it has this multidisciplinary aspect to it, um, I thought the easiest way to to work it and and you know, taking into account kind of my methodical way of looking at things in general was to break it down into into these blocks of individual uh, um, segments of information if you like you know so so although they they link to each other you know the art history links to the paleography but nevertheless you can read them as separate pieces and, and, and glean particular information out of, out of the separate parts
1: and then One of the things I enjoyed reading was all of the amazing things you were actually able to pull out of um, studying the manuscript. But at the same time, there were a lot of challenges with working with such a manuscript. What were some of the difficulties or also at the same time, advantages of the Psalter actually being placed in the bog where it was found?
0: Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, Well, certainly it, 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 it was an unknown book, Entity really right from the word go, because when I try to do research into the conservation aspect, so if I if I give it a little bit of context here, the manuscript was buried beneath the ground um, for over a thousand years. The climate, the the environment, if you like, in a bog is very different than you would find, say, it was buried in earth. It's 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 a fluid. Um, environment. It's a wet, damp and and acidic environment. So it's a very aggressive and and generally speaking um, detrimental to organics that are buried there. Um, Because of that, the manuscript itself was in a, in a, a very poor state of repair when it was retrieved. That led to a number of challenges was how do we stabilize this very fragile, very fragmented, with much losses to it. How do we stabilize this and make it accessible? Um, as I say, for display, for scholars to study. How do we do this? And I, I say this, I say this in lectures sometimes that if you if you Google um, bog and vellum or parchment, you don't get very much back. This is this was new territory, so we had to start from scratch, and and it took some months. to to come up with a method to extract this moisture, this this saturated moisture that had been, you know, as I said, the book has sat in for for over a thousand years to stabilize it. I mean, without getting into the kind of technical side of it too much, parchment is unlike leather. Parchment is produced um, under this high level of tension. And when you allow it to dry, which we did, we sampled a little piece by itself and just allowed it to air dry And it reduced in size by about 75%. It's extremely hygroscopic. So you can imagine if we just decided to dry out this sodden book, we would be left with nothing but a big clump uh, of of solid parchment. In fact, it would actually be a lump of gelatin, if you like, more or less, because that's the kind of stage it goes to, It goes to this gelatinization. So so finding a way to stabilize and, and dry... Um, the solvent parchment fragments, which were very fragile, broken. What was one of the, one of the kind of most stressful challenges and one of the most difficult challenges? But but we 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 did we we, we succeeded, I and mean, that's why I'm sitting here today talking to you because we have something to talk about. Uh, we we managed to uh, use a method of of what we call solvent exchange. We we swapped out the water for a, for a non-polar solvent, and then we dried through a vacuum. And and although it took nearly two years to dry the whole manuscript, um, which is only 60 folios, but that's, that's the kind of length of the process. So that was kind of one of the difficulties, one of one of, one of the many difficulties that and um, challenges it presented. But as, I, you did ask also about advantages, and probably the biggest advantage the manuscript at least um, had from being buried for a thousand years is that we didn't get at it. <laughs> Us people, you know, in use over centuries. If we think of all the early medieval manuscripts or later medieval manuscripts, the revered ones, you know, the highly illuminated, as I said, I mentioned Book of Kells, Book of Duro, Lindisfarne Gospels, all these wonderful gospel books. In many of these, we have to look for trace evidence of what they originally looked like, what were the original sewings, what were the original bindings looked like, because over the centuries they've been rebound time and time again, they've been trimmed, there have been large losses of areas of text, there have been pages lost and removed from it. because we know the Fadenmore Salter actually was placed in the ground quite early on after it was produced, we know this from uh, the strata and the location it was found in, then it, then we know, although the poor thing was bashed up and disheveled and, and sodden um, and degraded, it was in its original state. It, it was you know, unmodified, if you like. So that was a big advantage because that's information that's hard to come by, particularly from a codicological bo- point of view, that is studying the form of a book, what makes up the materiality of a book.
1: So thinking about that materiality as well as your experience with more generally with conservation and the and Marsalter, how are books artifacts?
0: Um, exactly for that reason, because they are three-dimensional objects made up of a number of components. So the components themselves Um, tell us, you know, are part of the artifact, and we look at the components, let me say, for example, um, a book is sewn on a support across the spine. The materials they choose to use for that support um, inform us about the, the geography, where it might have been produced, the chronology, when it might have been produced, and the availability of materials. The leather they cover the boards with, if there are boards in play, tell us the availability of what sort of animal stock was around. Um, the style used tells us what influences came into play. What did the bookbinder or the scribe or the artist know? What was what was their knowledge base when they were producing the manuscript so we know the influences from outside? So this is why I say, you know, if, if we think of it as, a, and I always say this about, um, you know, They are these three-dimensional objects that have much more to say than their contents if you take the time to look at them. It's all a bit kind of CSI, but you know, the information is there.
1: So uh, with this particular um, book, who would have likely owned it in early Medieval Ireland and how would this manuscripts have been perceived and used by them?
0: Mm. Good question. We can make presumptions, and obviously we can't know for sure. Well, we, we can't. Sometimes we do know for sure if there's a colophon, if, if, if the scribe is being good enough to sign it for us, and, and and he's important enough to show up in historic documents, then, you know, we do have the odd manuscripts, such as the MacGregor Gospels um, that, that attest to this. But in general terms, we, we, we have to base it on supposition and on what we know was typical practice of the time. If we look at the area where the Faddenmore Psalter was found, which is what they called the monastic midlands, it was bang in the middle of what we call the monastic midlands of Ireland. This was an area that was heavily populated with small and larger monasteries. So we can take a, a leap and it's not too much of a, a gamble, I guess, to say it was likely the product of a local monastery. Um, its use is a complicated one for the Fadenmore Salter in particular. I, I could say, wait, you should read the book and find out, but I'll give you, I'll just give you some clues that um, there are certain features on the book that that suggest it may have had more than just um, a personal devotional book, let's say, of a monk. There are markings on the cover to suggest it was the cover itself has been used as, as a way of testing out what we call trial motifs, testing out artistic designs the way the book was constructed which looks like it wasn't actually a single it may it may or may not have been a single block of pages it may have been individual gatherings and and if it had a didactic purpose if it was being used for teaching Young novices, um, then having a book that you can give out in sections for, for the trainees to, to either learn their Latin from, don't forget Irish monks have to learn their Latin, they, it isn't the vernacular language here, um, or learn their letters and writing, then it may be a useful uh, way of doing it. So it, it was, it, it, I would say, we're, we're quite sure it was It was the product of a monastery. Its function was pro- You know, we don't not really sure about that, but it's quite possible that it was used as a teaching tool, if you like.
1: Um, With this particular aspect of its history in mind, can you walk me through probably, I guess, very as brief as possible? I don't want to give away details from the book, but can you walk me through the life of this particular manuscript?
0: well you know it's supposition um i, I, I haven't got the I haven't got the crystal ball to to look into here it's supposition to some degree but it, yeah so the, the cover of the manuscript is interesting in itself and we'll probably talk about that a little more in detail later but um the the cover of the manuscript just displays what we would call historic wear and tear so just and this goes back to the artifact aspect of it again so just looking at it tells us it had a, a, a had a a tough enough life it's got tears in areas from from just from use you can actually see wonderful um erosion of the pigment layer where it was held and, and people you know in early medieval ireland held books just like people in modern ireland held the book so you find the wear in 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 specific areas so the cover has to suggest to us that it was um, it was well used well worn in fact and, and multi-purposed so as, as I mentioned earlier there's these very very fine scribings of, of people testing decorations Irish very much kind of this Irish style of um, decoration that you would find in medieval manuscripts, this lace work and knot work and key patterns all inscribed into the cover so so there's a, a you know an, out, a, an additional use if you like the cover. For the text block itself, for the Sam, the Book of Sams themselves, I should say at this point that actually we've only got fifteen percent. We we have something of every page, we have something of all sixty folios, but there are large losses in most of the folia. So we're not, we're not looking at a complete volume from that point of view. What we can see, uh, and what we might comment on, is that. The text itself has very little in the way of its evidence of wear and tear, its evidence of use. So there are no glosses, no interlinear glosses. There's no margin notes, which is very, very typical. You see of a manuscript that works its way through the centuries. People add to it, people make observations, people doodle on it, you know. Um, so there's very little evidence of that. So so that all suggests that that, Although the cover may have had a hard use and may have had a previous life, the manuscript itself was fairly, let's call it fresh, when it was actually uh, found its way into the bar.
1: And then with the creation of this manuscript, um, this is just one phase. Um, While the manuscript's being made, were there different people involved in the process of constructing it? And if so, how do you differentiate between individuals' work or can you Differentiate mm. between their work.
0: Mm. Good, it's a good point. Again, there, there, there are the odd manuscripts that, that are generous enough to, to inform us of this. The Lindisfarne Gospels famously talk about both the scribe and the metalwork person and the, person, the binding. Um, in more general terms, what, what you can say is, in, in this period, um, and I'll reference Ireland particularly in this, in this instance, uh, in this period, the production of a book in a monastery was an in-house operation from start to finish. Even, even most likely from the point of view of the animals used to provide the leather and the parchments were probably out of their own stock. So, so it was an in-house process. And, and like you would expect, I guess, you know there would have been specialists who would have been specialists in, in making the leather. There might have been the same specialist who prepared the parchment. Then, of course, you have the scribe and you have the artist, but very often you will have more than one scribe um, within a manuscript. In fact, it's, most, it's more than likely you'll have more than one scribe involved. It's, it's more unusual to have a single scribe. The paleographers um, will determine that by looking for changes. It's not my area of expertise at all, but they will note differences in the hands. They often explain them to me. I can't see them. So it's a it's a fine art um, where they can see changes in the writing style or and it can be very, very subtle because, of course, all these scribes are trained, unlike today, where where you know, where you, you've got to, you're not trained in how to write specifically. Um they were trained in a very specific way, in a very specific manner, to use a very specific style. And in the case of the Fatimist soldiers, it, it's a hand we call insular majuscule. So every letter was supposed to be formed in this, in a particular way. So, but subtleties uh, and 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 of course, just human, you know, differences mean different scribes have different. And that's how we determine um, a change in hands.
1: And then, were you able to? Granted, I know the fragmented nature of the fad in Morris but were you able to determine any different people being involved, perhaps, in the creation of the manuscript?
0: Well, all we, not, not really, to be honest. I mean, all we know is there was a scribe and uh, there other people certainly had access to it, as I say, referencing back again to this kind of doodling on the front cover. I can't imagine the scribe themselves, you know, if it's their precious manuscript net, then, you know, you imagine it at home with, with, with your favourite hardback book that you've got? You can't imagine yourself scribbling on the front of it, can you? You know, so so certainly other people seem to have got involved. Are are perhaps a manuscript falls out of use or function um, because, of course, all these manuscripts at this stage were being copied from an exemplar. That's what they're doing; they're producing copies of, of a known text. Um, so it's really it's 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 neon impossible to say how many people are involved with it. Um, but you know, as as a kind of as a kind of um conservative estimate you you would imagine there was a, at least a scribe and at least a craftsperson at, of some description to produce the substrate for them to write on
1: and then thinking of these designs as well as the text and the construction of the manuscript is could you one of the most interesting aspects of the manuscript among many within your book is the fact that it different cultures were drawn upon both within Ireland, as well as outside of it. Could you please more elaborate more on that?
0: Yeah. I mean, um, that's, that's, this is where more became it, it added an additional um, kind of thread of interest, if you like, it's an element that we weren't expecting. So, when the, let, let me, let me, let's go back to 2006 again a little bit here and, and when the manuscript was discovered and when, when news of this broke and when when it was discussed with scholars, they all went, oh, we knew it would be a psalter, <laughs> you know, if, if they were going to find a book in a bog, don't forget it is the first ever book medieval manuscript retrieved from a wetland environment. In Europe, don't mind Ireland. Um, but they all went, oh, yeah, we knew it would be a psalter because, because the psalter played such a central role in, in monastic Ireland from a teaching point of view. As I say, don't forget, uh, Irish monks um, didn't have Latin. It wasn't their language. So not only when, when, when they were taking on Christianity on board, they also had to take on the language of Christianity, which was, of course, Latin, and the written word was in Latin. Um, so you had that aspect to it. Um, sorry, uh, yeah, so I'm losing the thread. Of you, what were you asking me? You...
1: Um, were different cultures involved in, were di- different cultures inspire the people that were working on the manuscript? Uh,
0: yeah, so this was the aspect. And, and again, it goes back to a point I made earlier about the idea that it was untouched by us. It, 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 it had survived in its original condition, albeit now a very poor condition. So it had, it had avoided all modifications through the centuries. And what um, that condition and what that structure told us was that the influence was from a uh, a Roman Greco Christian influence, a Mediterranean influence from the Near East, um, where, where in fact, the codex was developed, the folded book, as we know it today, that developed. And that had a particular style to it and, and a particular way of manufacturing it. And many aspects of the structure of the Fathomar Psalter are contained in this. So, you know, we're talking across continents here, in fact. And yes, there are elements and influences. It, it's not a huge surprise, let's say, you know, I mean, I, I do think we, we we always underestimate the ability of, of the medieval uh, humanity to travel, to move around, to transport goods, to trade, um, so they were exposed to these things, but but it's nice to have uh, physical evidence of it. And and, and the Fathomor Psalter in its structure shows direct influences from that Mediterranean early Christian culture.
1: Um, in light of that, would you also talk about a bit more about the Hiberno-Coptic links that are expressed within the book?
0: Yes, well, it, it, that's kind of honing in, if you like, a little bit more on what, what I just commented on that. So when, <laughs> when the book was discovered, um, the cover, we could see the writing. And, and as I mentioned earlier, we could see this very Irish hand, this insular majuscule hand, and everyone, yep, that's definitely an Irish book, no doubt about that. But the cover lay on the bottom of this mass of, of bog material, of weeds, of, of roots, and, and of course, of, of fragments of manuscripts. And it took me a long time to get to it because I literally worked through the strata until we got to the bottom. But it was kind of peeking out enough. And, 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 and indeed, before the, process, the conservation process even began, um, scholars were brought over and they were kind of also intrigued by what this original cover. That's how rare original covers are, that it, it created this sort of interest, you know. And they all draw drew um, kind of parallels with Coptic book structures. To describe very briefly of what they were talking about and what we will discover is if we imagine a binding, a book binding, and it has two boards and it's covered with a material, typically leather. With the, with these early um, Coptic Mediterranean structures, it was a single piece of leather just creased like a folder, like your modern modern day uh, wallet that you carry around documents in these plastic wallets similar to that if you like complete with flap and all um so so this was the parallel they were were drawing to that it had this specifically Coptic look to it because that's what it appeared like um at the bottom of the globe. and indeed when 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 we eventually got to it yes indeed it, it does it mirrors the not only does it mirror Stylistically and technically, it actually mirrors in the materials used because the lining typically of these um, Coptic style covers where the leather was lined with papyrus, which, of course, was plentiful in, in Coptic Egypt. The Fat Morse cover is also lined with papyrus, which I can tell you raised quite a few eyebrows, you know, wondering how, we, how papyrus managed to make its way all the way over here.
1: And then is this, in in light of these connections further across the seas, is, how did the Fadamore Psalter then compare with other Psalters and more generally to the corpus of known manuscripts from early medieval Ireland? Is it, I guess you can't necessarily say is a typical example, but is it somewhat of a typical example of the period?
0: well yeah i mean it's i think it's safe enough to say it in in many ways it's typical and in other ways it's it's untypical so so it is very typical um, from the point of view of how it's laid out it's as again we we'll go back to the idea the text itself the writing is irish magic it's exactly what you would expect for a, a, a major manuscript it, it's 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 a largest kind of a4 size you know um it's single column um Again, a kind of Irish feature. It's the Psalms. And the Psalms were traditionally here, not, not exclusively in Ireland, but but but, but you know, nearly um, in every example of Irish salters, we have medieval salters divided into 350s. This was to aid the learning process rather than kind of bombarding you with 150. So they would break them up into 350s and they would usually mark the beginning of each 50 with, it, with it, some illumination or decorated lettering. The Fathomar also has this feature. So, you and and I'd say another thing, um, it is written on calfskin vellum. And I've been exposed to the, the majority of, of early medieval Irish manuscripts in one way or another over the years and 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 can state categorically that for whatever reason, every one of them are also on vellum. Uh, so it seems to be a tradition that we, we use calfskin vellum for our manuscripts. On the continent, you find goatskin, you find sheepskin, but here we seem to use so. There we have a text block that is screaming at you: "I'm Irish." You no, know, <laughs> um, it, it's only it's only mi- missing the shamrock at the bottom of the page to let <laughs> you know. <laughs> the however of course as we just mentioned the cover is is telling us otherwise and it's 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 got this if you want to call it exotic um uh you know near eastern aspect to it not as i say not only in its makeup but also in the materials so it's familiar and unfamiliar uh both in the one book and then uh with
1: in addition to the physical structure you actually study the content of the manuscript as well you bring that you've brought this up earlier in the interview one of the cornerstones of the book is the need to investigate all different aspects and involving different scholars from both the sciences and the humanities why was conducting multidisciplinary research critical
0: um it, it, yeah i mean it, it, it was my attempt to extract as much as we can um from it and and always to do that i think you you need to engage with as many experts as you possibly can and again as you say we we, we, we mentioned this earlier that that as an object that as as an artifact it, it it requires that multidisciplinary approach because there are areas it, it requires paleography it requires experts in the writing it requires historical scholars to understand. In fact, we actually have Salter scholars. You know, we have luckily, we're, we're lucky that we have one of the kind of world-renowned Salter scholars here in Ireland. Um, it requires Dakota Ecologists, and that's when coming in to look at the structure, how it was made up. So, and, and indeed the hard sciences, you know, which we are now engaging with more, and particularly in the, in the, from the conservation point of view, we're engaging in the hard sciences. And, and all of these come together, to to help us understand better the background um, as I say, the availability of materials and just in in general, create a a fuller picture, if you like.
1: Uh, Can you give an example where two different subject areas overlapped while we were working on the Fatimore Psalter? Yes,
0: uh, we were looking at the writing, which we have, we're lucky enough, again, to have here um, Professor Tim O'Neill, who is a calligrapher and Irish historian, and he was very much involved in the project, uh, as I say, looking at the writing, he, so he understands um, changes in hand, changes in style. But we also wanted to see if we could analyse what were they using to write with. It generally, uh, at this period, we expect iron gall inks to be used. But in order to, for that, I mean, with experience, you, you get to be able to tell these the difference in inks, and carbon inks and iron gall inks. But you need the science to back it up. Otherwise, you, you, you can never really be sure. And there can be combinations. So co- combined with Tim's work of, of saying, you know, what was used and how it was produced, we, we applied the hard sciences of XRF um x-ray fluorescence and this reads the component parts of the pigments um and by reading the component parts of the pigments we can determine what those inks were and and you know that's just one example uh where where particularly the hard sciences and, and the kind of scholarly side of it combine to, to get an end result and 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 the end result of that although you know, we're not, not necessarily getting any, any word-breaking news, but it's it's confirmation, it's solid confirmation that what we're looking at is what we think it is.
1: And then turning to the contents of the manuscript, why were the Psalms critical at this time?
0: Yes. Um, again, it goes back to an earlier point I was making about when Christianity uh, arrived in Ireland um, in, in the 5th century, and, and we slowly started to absorb it, and it was accepted. It Part of the Christianity, obviously, it, it, it's, it's um, a religion of text. It's a religion of words, um, which requires books. And the, the language of Christianity is Latin. So not only when, when Christianity was taken up and accepted here, and it started to develop, it, it moved from a diocesan, Aspect of Christianity quite quickly by the sixth century into a mon- more monastic, and and in, in, in fact, this is the kind of you know world that Chad Morris was from. Uh, the kind of monastic Christianity developed here quite quickly um, and almost overshadowed the kind of diocesan Church of Rome. Um, but in order to train these novice monks, the Oplates, uh, not only did they have to learn the language. They had to um, learn their texts, their religious texts. And the Psalms was always seen as, as, as an ideal way of doing both. So they would learn their letters. They had to, as I say, commit to memory, which is an amazing feat. I always say all 150 Psalms. Um, so it, it, it was very much, this, it, although it's part of the Old Testament, of course, it, it was very much a didactic part of training monks um to become you know to, to be able to become what they call uh soldiers. so they were trained in their psalms
1: your book is also as about as much the context of the psalter in early medieval books and manuscript production why was this such an essential element of your book and to weave it throughout the uh, throughout your book
0: why was sorry I Don't follow that
1: <laughs> sorry <laughs> why was such uh, why was uh the providing the context of the Psalter as well as early medieval manuscript production an important element of your book?
0: Yeah, well, well because, um, it, it, again, it, it, it connects to the previous point that because the Psalter had such a central role here and, and generally, I think, it, through, through the Christian world, it, it played such a central role. And, and interestingly enough, one of our very earliest manuscripts, surviving manuscripts in Ireland, the Cossack. Um, uh, dates around 600 is actually also a psalter, um, and and we have very few of them. There must have been loads of them. There must have been lots and lots of psalters um, and other, of course, gospel books, etc. But but we imagine there must have been a lot of psalters around. So. We very little to compare of them. We we much later ones, um, and we have the Catholic this really early one from 600. But we also have some from 11th, 12th century. But nothing from that what what they call the kind of high period in this high, uh, early medieval period, um, and the Fathmore arrived. Poof, Bang in time, just in that perfect moment. So it, had a, it has a, a, a very significant context, if you like, from the corpus of early medieval manuscripts that, that survive here.
1: And then what does then the book reveal more about the connections of early Irish monasteries um, and monastic sites uh, in Ireland in general to the rest of the world?
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we know about the Peregrini, We know that um, once once monasticism uh, established itself here, uh, very shortly after that, in the seventh century, eighth century, uh, they they migrated outwards again. So so this is kind of on the back of the Dark Ages, where where you know society had had kind of um, broken down and and religion had kind of faded we had Ireland who had originally got its religion from Europe, was now going back if you like, and bringing it back and spreading it. So, um, and we have, of course, we have extant evidence of this throughout Europe. We, there are monasteries uh, in in Italy, in Bobbio, in Switzerland, in Saint Gallen, and these are all Irish monastic sites that were established by Irish monks um, spreading out. We also, of course, have have in our in our annals, in our historic documents, evidence of. Um, monks coming here to train from the far away believe it or not as egypt as you know so there is uh, although we have no solid evidence it is documented that um we had monks from so and you've also got the pilgrimages you know so the as, as well as well as these kind of establishing um, um monastic sites outside of ireland and this was seen as part of their mission uh, they would also travel and and so you get you would also of course get Pilgrimages where you've got um, monks and priests coming from various different locations and and congregating Rome would be an obvious one where they would congregate. So you get this kind of, uh, you know, cross fertilization, if you like, uh, of of belief and of of discussion. uh, And in fact, we even have artifacts. We have um, been exchanged and evidence of that happening, you know, during these, these pilgrims.
1: So does then the Fadden Moor Psalter encapsulate uh, early medieval Irish culture and life through these links and as well as other aspects of it?
0: Yeah, I suppose it does. And and in fact, it does it in a way that um, other manuscripts don't, that, you know, other other high end, highly illuminated manuscripts don't. And and that's because it, it. it is displaying elements in its binding of of something that's not typical of, on our shores. It's, you know so we are having we're seeing direct influence from another um, Christian culture on Irish culture and it's physical evidence of that. Now there is still argument uh, as to whether this discovery of, of the Fathom or Psalter is an import is it from one of these remote religious um, sites, or it's the technology learned and adopted here. Either, either either, there are two camps and, you know, it remains a kind of mystery. But it does demonstrate, as you say, it does demonstrate very well that, that Ireland wasn't this inward insular looking culture, that it, it was part of the larger Christian world at that time and, and, and indeed a key part of it from the point of view of, of expanding it uh, and, and uh, of, of producing the manuscripts they were you know avid avid copiers um, of, of texts, even outside religious texts uh, of early roman texts
1: and then what is your favorite part of the book
0: probably the beginning of psalm 51 quid gloriato um, if, you, if you remember I mentioned earlier about this dividing up the Psalms into the 350s and in the Fathomore Psalter they mark the beginning of the each of the 50s by using a decorated letter. Otherwise the, the Fadmore Psalter is quite plain and there's very little in the way of, of decoration. We don't have all this wonderful illumination you see in, in, in the exotic illuminated manuscripts that survive. Um, but... The Quid Gloriata has this one, uh, what what would have been at one time, a wonderfully ornate um, geometric lettering at the beginning. The Quid has got this massive big Q with with crosses inside it, blocks of color. So you've got this combination of insular writing, um, zoomorphic features. It's even got this wonderful little bird's head at the bottom with a kind of uh, tail coming out the back of its head very strange features um so it, it just it it just reminds us that or reminds me that it you know it wasn't this kind of plain day-to-day as was i even suggested myself at one stage just kind of what i called medieval paperback but that it was a quality product and it it, it's, it can be difficult to visualize it when you see it in its State today because it, it suffers so much, but that page, the Carter page, shows that. And again, it comes back to a point you're making about how many people involved. That you know, this this was a, a skilled artist produced this movie page, and and we we actually had it reproduced, and um, because of course. Dog. But um, we, we had this pre-Gloriata page reproduced. It, you add, It's in the book. And it just gives you an idea of the vibrancy and, and the skill um, and, and the visual effect this manuscript would have had.
1: And then what is the one thing that you hope readers take away from reading your book?
0: Mm. Right. Um, well, just uh, I guess that um, they appreciate what was required to produce a book like this in that period, but also what can be achieved when what appears to be very little uh, surviving by just through through hard graft, through the resources being made available to you and having the access um, to the expertise you need that, you know as i say what what looked like and and to give you an idea this this manuscript before its conservation treatment before when it was taken out of the ground um quickly gained the nickname of the lasagna and it, just based on what it looked like yes we managed to to you know, take it from what was basically a lump of, of, of massive organic material and convert it. And, and you see this happening through the book, to my book rather than the Psalter, um, the, the processes of, of survival and, and how much can actually be retrieved. How much, inform- and I mean that by information as opposed to actual material, how much information can be gleaned from what seemed like a hopeless partying lost in a bomb.
1: Do you have any future projects or anything else that you'd like to mention on the podcast?
0: Hmm. I'm well, um, currently I'm turning my focus to um, later medieval Irish material uh, and Irish language manuscripts, which is another area. Obviously the written word here in through all this period was, was in Latin, as I say, typically. Um the odd Greek, but mostly in Latin, but uh, the vernacular came back into use in, in the kind of later centuries from the kind of 12th century on. And there is a lot of work there. We 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 don't have a, a huge survival rate, but across institutions here and indeed abroad um, are, are um, um, very important Irish language manuscripts. Um, so at the moment, I'm kind of involved in looking at the codicology of, of these manuscripts, how they were put together, what their usage was, the materials used, so the same thing. So yeah, it's, it's ongoing, never ending.
1: It sounds really interesting. Thank you so much, John, mm. for joining me today to talk about your book. A
0: pleasure, thank you.
1: To, fi- to find out more about whether this was an, the faden Salter was an un- unintentional deposit or an accidental loss, by Dr. John Gillis's book, The Fadenmore Psalter, The Discovery and Conservation of a Medieval Treasure, which is available now through the Wordwell Group and the National Museum of Ireland. To see the Fadenmore Psalter itself, you can visit the National Museum of Ireland Archaeology on Kildare Street in Dublin. If you'd like to hear more episodes, subscribe to New Books on Irish Studies on the New Books Network website, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, stay sa- stay safe and keep reading.